Give me two days. Give me two good days. And I'll have it done. Those are the words that I said to Wendy, my wife, back in June uh, when we moved into our new house. And I was talking specifically about a project in the basement that needed to be done. We moved into a house that had a room finished in the basement, but I knew before moving in that it was going to need to be torn out and reworked. Uh, there was some water and damage, and so I knew that it was going to have to be redone and rebuilt. So I said, give me two good days, and I will have this done. A couple of days, weeks, months later, I was saying somewhere around, I think, the end of October, beginning of November, I will have it done by Thanksgiving. By Thanksgiving, it'll be done, and it'll be all set, and we'll be ready to move in. December comes around, and I think my words were, I didn't say which Thanksgiving it would be. (laughs) Yesterday, as I was continuing the work on my basement, uh, this story came to my mind in light of this morning's series that we're beginning, Rebuild, and it reminded me that sometimes when you rebuild, it takes more work than even building in the first place. That sometimes rebuilding takes more effort than if you just sit down and build something in the first place. If you think about it, when you rebuild something, you have to remove something that was there before often. You can't just start. You've got you've to take something that was there and clear it out before you get to a place where you're even able to rebuild. When you rebuild, you sometimes find things that you didn't expect to find. Buried electrical connection, water damage, or other things that come into play that you didn't know were there, but then you're rebuilding, and so you find these things. When you rebuild, you are working sometimes on someone else's work that someone else put in place, and you've got to decide whether you're going to keep it and use it, or you're going to take it out and start afresh. Rebuilding often requires even more work than building. Oh, that's something, Pastor Marvin, uh, your shirt, I think, I found that out. That's right. That has nothing to do with rebuilding, but I wanted to make sure you knew where your shirt was. Um, There. Sorry. It's hard for me to give Pastor Marvin a hard time this week on this. He was out building houses in Mexico for people this week, and so it's really hard for me to give him a hard time, but I need to give him a little bit of a hard time. Um, Moving back to rebuilding. Rebuilding. When you are rebuilding, you have to sometimes do more work than it takes to build up. It's true when it comes to houses. It's true when it comes to projects. It's true when it comes to a relationship. When you think about it, when you are building something for the first time, maybe it's a relationship with someone you're about to start dating, or a friend, or maybe you just had your first child, and you know, that first day, and you haven't even started building, you're building for the first time a relationship. The slate's clean, nothing's been said They don't know anything about you. You don't know anything about them. You're building for the first time. And there's 
difficulty there, but there's also an ease there that you don't have when you have to rebuild something. Because then you begin to speak, you begin to say things, you begin to do things, and all of a sudden at some point you get to a place where maybe rebuilding needs to take place. You say things like, wait, 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 I did not, I didn't mean it that way. Or, or that's not what I meant. Or that didn't come out the way I was thinking. Or just, I wasn't thinking. I had something else on my mind. I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean for it to come out that way. Can we start over? Rebuilding process in relationships sometimes takes more work than the building in the first place. You have to repair damage that's been done. You have to address things that have been broken. And then you have to begin the rebuilding process. It's true in our relationships with people. It's true in our relationship with God as well in our spiritual life. You begin walking with God and you have all these things set out. And Lord, it's going to be me and you. And, and I'm totally focused on you. And, and then nothing's going to come before you. And you're here on a Sunday morning and you're singing out these songs. God, change me from the inside out. And, and I'm no longer a slave to fear. And you're excited and you're serving God. And then you walk out those doors and suddenly you don't. And find yourself living the life that you know you want to live for God. And there's a rebuilding work that needs to take place in your walk with the Lord. There's a rebuilding that needs to take place in our lives. The work of rebuilding can be difficult. And for the next several weeks, uh, from now until just before Easter, we're going to be walking through the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament under the title of this series, Rebuild. Rebuild. We're going to rebuild. Build. We're going to talk about Nehemiah's story and really talk about God's story. Let me give you, just before we get into this morning, kind of really get into the, the, the topic this morning, I need to just give you a little bit of background on Nehemiah, because some of you hear Nehemiah and you're like, who is this guy? Some of you guys know him and you read the Bible and you know this and you're like, I got this down, I know what's coming, Pastor Rick, but others may be in here and you're like, okay, Nehemiah, where is that? Old Testament, New Testament, it's in the Bible, right? And who is this guy and where is it? So let me just give you a little bit of context, a little bit of setting, because this is important sometimes to understand where we're talking about, where we are. So Nehemiah in the Old Testament, so before Christ, before Christ came, in the Old Testament books, uh, Nehemiah is, is in that section of the Bible. It's actually, if you look at your Bible, someone has a paper Bible. Does anyone carry these still? Paper Bible, right? Someone has a paper Bible. So, so find Nehemiah in your paper Bible, and then find the end of the Old Testament. So the end of the Old Testament ends in Malachi, right? It's the last book. If you're Italian, it's Malici. Um, <laughs> Find that book at the end. So, and if you do, if you find Nehemiah in the Old Testament, here's what you're going to find. That there's about this much of the Old Testament that precedes Nehemiah, and there's about this much of the Old Testament that comes after Nehemiah. 
So when you look at it in the context of your Bible, it looks like Nehemiah kind of falls right in the middle of the Old Testament story, if you look at it that way. But I want you to know this morning, one of the things I want us to know is it actually doesn't chronologically. Your Bible and your Old Testament especially is not organized chronologically. It's organized more by genre and topic. So history literature is kept together and prophets are kept together and wisdom literature is kept together. And so uh, Nehemiah is part of the historical writings of Scripture. And it looks like it's in the middle, but actually it's really right near the end of Old Testament history. The Old Testament closes out around 400 B.C. as the end of the Old Testament writings. There's about 400 years of silence when it comes to God's word between the end of the Old Testament and when John the Baptist and Jesus breaks on the scene in what we know as the New Testament Gospels. And the life of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah, when we look at it, is right about at the end of that Old Testament period, just about at the beginning of those 400 years of silence. So it's important that you understand that's, that's where we are. And here's why it's important. Because here's what's going on in the history of God's people. And that's kind of what we're looking at. God tells his story through his relationship with people. Sometimes individuals and sometimes his people as a whole and as a collective. God lets us know about himself. God reveals truths to himself by how he deals with people. So here's where we are in the story of God's people. Uh, Prior to the time of Nehemiah, God's people were not living for him. They were not fulfilling the commitments that they made. They were not living their life for God. They were not honoring him. And so God had allowed them to be taken into what's known as the Babylonian exile. That sounds really complicated. It's not. It's actually really simple. Exile into Babylon is all it is. There's a nation of Babylon. God's people, God allowed his people to be taken captive into Babylon, into exile because of the way they were living. God said to them that I'm going to allow another nation to come in and you're going to be taken into exile. In fact, one of the most famous scripture verses that you may know or heard or seen on a coffee cup, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for a hope and a future is really God's words to people who are in exile. God says, look, you're in exile. You're in a foreign country. You don't have freedom. But I know I have great plans for you. They don't start for another 70 years until after exile. Those hope in the future and the great things are coming. Right now, you're in exile and you're going to be there for a while. And that's where God tells his people, look, I have allowed you to go into this place. I have allowed you to be taken captive. But the purpose is for you to be reminded of me. And so he sends prophets to tell them, you're going to be delivered. So they get taken into exile about 606 B.C. It's about, uh, and, the, and God says, you're going to be there about 70 years. You're going to be there a while. There were some false prophets running around saying, oh, it'll just be a few years and we'll be fine. God sends Jeremiah and says, nope, it's 70 years, full generation and plus some. You're going to be there before God delivers you, but God will deliver you. God will deliver you. And he said, 70 years, God will deliver you. About 538 BC, uh, the Babylonian exile, uh, another nation comes to power, and that's the nation of Persia. Taking you back to your history classes in school, remember Persia? Persia comes in about 538 BC, takes over, and there's a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus, really moved by God, 
starts to send the people back, starts to send God's people back to the nation, to Israel, to their land, says you can go and rebuild your temple. We don't know exactly why Cyrus in his mind did this. Maybe he was just hedging his bets, thinking the more people that are worshiping and praying for me, the better. We don't know why he did it, but we know that God moved him to do it, and God sent people back to there. So he sent a man named Zerubbabel, went back and rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the temple to God. And he goes back, Zerubbabel goes back about 538 BC with the first people. In 516 BC, they have the dedication of the temple. And then there's another book in the Bible, Ezra, that precedes Nehemiah. Ezra goes back about 458 BC, goes back to Israel and starts reinstituting following God's laws, following God's provision. Ezra goes back, reintroduces the law and the covenant to following God. And then about 445 BC is where we pick up on the story of Nehemiah. And there's more to this, this background, and if you're interested in it, I'd uh, encourage you to watch the video the Bible Project has on it. That's our Bible reading plan that we're going through as a church. Uh, The Bible Project at the beginning of every book has a summary of that book and, uh, and what's going on, and it does, there's about an eight-minute video on Ezra and Nehemiah, because originally they were one book, even though they're broken up into two books in our Bible. Originally, they were one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, and so if you watch that video, it'll give you some great background on that. But uh, 455 B.C. is where Nehemiah comes up. Nehemiah is an Israelite living away from Jerusalem. I love uh, this first chapter of Nehemiah and the way Louis read it. Um, it's one of my favorite starts to any book of the Bible. I don't know if you can have favorite to starts, but this is one of my favorite starts to any book of the Bible because it starts almost like a movie scene that you would see in a modern movie. You know, Nehemiah is in the king's palace and you don't really know why he's there or who he is and you hear a little bit of background to the story and then he ends this part of chapter one with these words, I was the cupbearer to the king. You don't know who he is. You don't know what's going on. You have no idea if he has any significance at all. And then you find out this Israelite, this man, is right by the king's side every day of his life. And all of a sudden, drama is introduced into the situation and into the story. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king. Imagine that amazing responsibility. You know what a cupbearer is, right? He would try the food and the drink before the king ate it, and as long as he didn't die, the king could eat the food, right? Kind of a, kind of a tough role, but a really important role. And you could think it'd almost be like the Secret Service today. Because if you're in that role, you are gonna do everything you can to make sure whatever it is you eat or drink before the king isn't poisoned, and so that was Nehemiah's role, right? He's, he's there to make sure that everything he eats and drinks, therefore the king eats and drinks, is not poisoned. And he's in this incredible role. And he's in the palace in Persia. And he's by the side of king, who the king is at this point. His name is Artaxerxes. Say that with me. Artaxerxes. It's just a fun name to say. Artaxerxes. You don't meet a lot of Artaxerxes these days. But he's right beside the side of King Artaxerxes. And you can imagine what it's like being in a palace. I mean, spare no expense. All the luxury. Everything going on. And he is, you know, he's still living in a foreign land, but he's pretty comfortable. 
You know, he's got, he's got nice clothes because you're not walking into the king's presence without nice clothes. He's got a nice wardrobe. He's fed well. His, his family's taken care of. He is comfortable. So you can imagine this day that, see, that the scene is set in the beginning of this book that, that was just read for us. He's walking about his duties. He's heading, you know, he's the cupbearer to the king. He's got responsibilities. He's taking care of everything. And then this guy from Jerusalem, Hananiah, comes up. And I don't know, you know, exactly what the tone of the encounter was. But it's obvious that Nehemiah thought that was more going on in Jerusalem than actually was. So I imagine it was maybe just a casual ask. Hey, how's things going back in Jerusalem? You know, it's almost like he's going about his duties. He's got his responsibilities. And he, oh yeah, you know, and it's just a casual conversation. You know, just as you and I would say, how you doing? Fine. How you doing? Fine. Like, like that kind of interaction. How's things going in Jerusalem? And Hananiah says, not good. Not good. And that's where the story starts because that's where Nehemiah is stopped in his tracks. Because he says, the walls of Jerusalem are in shambles and the gates have been torn down, burned with fire, and the people are left exposed. And we're gonna talk in just a couple minutes about what that means and what Nehemiah does in response to that, but let me talk just a little bit about this idea that the walls were broken down. You know, as we started preparing this book to preach this month, and I really felt like this was a direction God was leading us, I did have to say to Pastor Brian a couple times, are we really gonna preach a book about walls being built right now in the midst of our (laughs) political climate and country? Like, the irony was not lost on me, just so you know. And you might be sitting here going, Pastor, are you going to start preaching a story right now about someone who works in the political realm who's building a wall? And uh, you know that? Are you the most insensitive, uh, tone-deaf pastor in the world uh, that you're going to do this? But here's the point. Listen, here's what we need to understand about Nehemiah and as we begin this book and this journey together. For Nehemiah, it was never about the wall. It's not about a wall. This book... They'll talk a lot about building a wall. They'll spend a lot of time building a wall. But the truth is, it's not really about building a wall. In fact, we're going to see this book. It's when a wall is not really a wall is the point of the book. There's a much larger point. You see, the crumbling walls really represented the crumbling culture and the crumbling worship and the crumbling state that the people were in relation to God. That it wasn't just, it may have been, the wall was just a symptom of where they were in their relationship with God. It really represented a crumbling place. What Nehemiah really realized is that the people of God were not in the place that they needed to be with God. For Nehemiah, it was never about the wall. Broken walls are a symptom of a greater problem. The relationship between God and his people was still broken In spite of the rebuilt temple and the discovery of the law of God, the relationship between God and his people lay in shambles. Nehemiah had the proper perspective. He understood the significance of broken walls within the larger framework of God's relationship with his people. 
And so this morning, each week we're gonna talk about what's necessary in order for us to rebuild, to rebuild in our lives, to rebuild in our spiritual walk, to rebuild in relationships. And this morning, the point I want us to understand is in order to rebuild, we need to keep God's story first. And here's what was going on in Nehemiah's life. He understood God's story first in his life. He understood the larger story. It wasn't so much about walls in one time, in one moment in history, What it was really about was that all of God's promises that he had made to his people throughout time and eternity, all of where Nehemiah's true hope was rested on what was going on in Jerusalem. And he thought everything was going fine, but he found out it was in shambles. See, the truth was Nehemiah's hope was not in the king who was right to his side. Nehemiah's hope was in his king and Lord God. And that word God had said many things and given many prophecies. And he had said one day a Messiah would come and he would come through these Jewish people and he would come through the nation of Israel. But if there is no, people, if there is no nation and there is no people, there is no place for that Messiah to come. And so Nehemiah understands the larger story that it's not just about walls in one time in one moment. It's about God's complete redemptive plan for all the world being thwarted right now. See, that's where Nehemiah's hope was. It wasn't in this king. He knew he was in a foreign land. Nehemiah's hope was in his God, and his God had given him promises, and these promises that he thought were being fulfilled, he found out were not being fulfilled. And so Nehemiah, in that moment, is broken because he has a picture of God's larger story. He knows what it's supposed to look like. And because he knows what it's supposed to look like, he's broken. Do you have a picture of God's larger story always before you in your life? I think we get so enamored with lesser stories. We get so enamored with lesser narratives. We get so enamored with lesser storylines that we don't always have before us God's larger story of what he's doing in the course of human history. Jesus in his prayer, we talked about it a few weeks ago, right at the front of his prayer, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now he didn't say that because, he didn't say thy kingdom come because he needed something to rhyme with thy will be done in English. He said it because that was at the forefront of who Jesus was. Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your plan. Lord, what you have. Lord, your story. Lord, let that be done. Lord, Lord, what you have in mind, let your story occupy not only my prayers, but let it occupy my life. What you are doing in the larger role, let me be, let that always be at my forefront. Let that always be my perspective. See, these things in our lives that we think are so important, these lesser storylines that we're trying to rebuild, what we forget is they're all subplots of God's awesome story of redemption that he is telling from the beginning of time until the end of it. They are all subplots in God's larger story, and we are all living as a subplot in that. And so Nehemiah has this picture of God's larger story. 
He's concerned about what's going on. He's concerned about what's happening. And when he hears that the people of God are not moving closer to him, not moving forward, he's broken. So in order for us to rebuild, we need to keep God's story first. In order for you to rebuild in your marriage, in order for you to rebuild with your kids, in order for you to rebuild in relationships in your life, because what we can do sometimes is think it's all about this relationship. I just gotta get this fixed and I'll be okay. But the true story is there's a much deeper problem and a much bigger story that needs to be fixed first because it's not about getting this particular item fixed that's going to fix you. It's about being right with God and then all these other things are put in the proper perspective. So here's a question and this is how I want to just spend the rest of the last few minutes we have together this morning. The question is this, how can we know that God's story is our main priority? How can you know that God's story is first in your life? How can you know that you are in the right place when it comes to seeing God's story first and having that as a priority? Two things. Two things quickly, and the first one is this. You know God's story is first when you grieve over the right things. You know God's story is first in your life when you grieve over the right things. The reason that Nehemiah was willing and able to go about the hard work of rebuilding was because something was broken. In order to rebuild, something needs to break. There's no need or desire to rebuild if something isn't broken. But it wasn't the walls that were broken that motivated Nehemiah. It was his broken heart that ultimately motivated him. The thing that was broken was Nehemiah's heart. It says it right here in Nehemiah chapter 1. He says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In fact, he would continue this for four months before he took action and went to the king to ask for permission to go and rebuild. Four months of mourning and fasting and praying and weeping. Four months of a broken heart. Why? Why? He was comfortable in the palace. He had everything he needed. What did it matter that a thousand miles away that the walls were broken down in Jerusalem. What concern of that was his? His family was taken care of. He had all his needs taken care of. It would have been easy for him to say, oh, sorry to hear that, guys. Tough break. Really sorry to hear that. I'll do what I can. I'll be praying for you. Why didn't he do that? Because we do that sometimes. Because sometimes we hear about something that someone's going through that's really difficult in another part of the world or it's not directly related to us and we say, oh, man, sorry to hear about that. Then we just move on. Doesn't really affect us. Why didn't Nehemiah do that? Because he knew God's larger story. And he knew that what they had just given them was bad news when it comes to God's larger story of people. And so he broke down and wept. Do you grieve over the things that grieve the hearts of God, the heart of God? What breaks your heart? And is your heart broken over the things that break God's heart? 
Will you be more grieved over a Super Bowl loss than over people throughout the world who don't know Christ and who die and go into a Christless eternity without having the chance to know him? Are you more grieved about a loss of a team tonight than you are about the persecution of Christians throughout the world that is going on right now? I'm not saying this to bring a load of guilt on us. That's not why I say it. I'm saying it as a real evaluative question upon our hearts and for you to ask in your own heart because if the answer is yes, then there may be something in my heart that's not right and that I don't have that larger story of God in perspective, that my perspectives and my priorities may be off if I am not more grieved by the fact that there are people around the world living in countries who have never heard the hope that Jesus came to bring, but I'm more grieved about what happens on a sports field or what happens in a job or what happens in, in another area of life. Again, not, it's not a guilt thing. It's an aspect of asking ourselves these questions. Do I grieve over the right things? And I don't always. And so in that moment, I at least have to come and say, God, you know, my heart is not necessarily disturbed by the right things. God, help me to come to a place where your larger picture is so far in front of me, is so often in front of me that my heart will break at the things that breaks your heart. That my heart will break at the things that break your heart. Do we grieve over the right things? If I don't, Lord, today, help my heart to break with the things that break your heart. First thing to understanding if we need God's story is always before us is asking ourselves, do we grieve over the right things? Because I think Nehemiah, it was clear, did. The second thing, you know God's story is first in your life when you realize the people are the project. The people are the project. It's not the walls. And it's not the building of a city. That's not what it is. Because at the end of this story, when we get to it, in, in, in eight or nine weeks, when we get to the end of Nehemiah, I'll give you a spoiler alert here. The walls are going to be built. At the end of Nehemiah, the walls are going to be built. All right? But Nehemiah is still going to be broken at some of the things that are going on because even though the walls are built, the people are not. The people are not necessarily living in the way that God has called them to live. And we realize that it was never about the walls. It was really about the people. And the people are the project. You know, when you look at God's work throughout history, it's about people. It's about his rescuing act. I know the path, our student ministries just started a new series uh, this Friday night on the rescuing act of God. It's about his rescue throughout human history of extending salvation, of extending redemption to people. The people are the project. The people are the project. It's not about, it's, it's never been about an ark it's never been about even creation of an earth. It's never been about a city. It's never been about walls. It's, it's always been about people. It's always been about the redemption and the love and the relationship that God desires to have 
with people. And when you keep God's story before your eyes, what you realize is the people are the projects. That God is concerned about the hearts of men and women. And he's concerned about the hearts of people who he wants to know. It's such a hard lesson for us to learn sometimes. It's never really about the project. It's about the people involved in the project that God is concerned about. It's never really about the house. It's about the home and the people that are in it that God is concerned about. It's never really about the job or the career. It's about what God is doing in you, within it, and through it to reach people in the midst of it. It's never about the move. It's about the people that are involved in it. That's what God's concerned about. It's so hard for us sometimes to learn this lesson. I had to learn this lesson a couple times. You know, as a church, we learned this lesson going through a couple building projects in the last few years that I was again and again reminded it's not about a building. It's about the church. And the church is the people of God. We built the Family Life Center that we opened a few years ago. It was never about building a multi-purpose space. Sure, it was about people that would be able to come as a result of that, but it was really a lot, I realized, was about the work that God wanted to do and the people who were doing the building. That God wanted to build up faith and trust. That God was at work in us to say, will you trust me? Will you have faith? Will you, will, will you, see, will you see that I can be the one who you can trust in this life. When we opened Belmont a little over a year ago, it was never about an old building built in 1896 that churches have met in for over 100 years. It was about the people who are worshiping there this morning and who are yet to worship there. It's always the people who are the project. In Nehemiah's prayer, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Then down in verse 10, it says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. It's the people who are the project. He never once in, these, in this prayer mentions walls. The walls, it was not, when the wall, it wasn't about the wall, it was about the people. It was about God's plan. And the walls were a part of a project that he had given them for a short time, but God was really concerned about the hearts of people. And so when I have God's plan in front of my eyes, what I realize is that the people are important. So if I'm walking through my day and I am ignoring the people in front of me and I am so focused on my task that I miss the person who I am looking into their eyes who was made in the image of God, who when Jesus died for them and loves them and I walk right past them like they don't exist, then I don't have God's larger story before my eyes because I don't realize how much that God loves people because I rarely... I say rarely, I don't ever see Jesus doing that in scripture. I don't ever see Jesus walking past and ignoring people because the people have always been the project. The people are what God cares about. And so if I am in understanding God's larger story, then I will be caught up in understanding how important the people are to him. So he prays, his heart breaks. And then what we'll see in the coming weeks is Nehemiah takes action. 
He takes action in response to his prayer, in response to his broken heart. He makes his plans, and then he takes action. He's willing to play his part in the story. And you and I need to be willing to play our part in the story. Yes, we need to pray, and then we need to act and play our part in the story. If you pray without acting, you rebuild little. If you act without praying, you produce short-term results. But if we will pray, allow our hearts to be broken, and then respond as God leads us to, we will see God move. But the thing that we need to keep in front of us more than anything as we walk through this book and this part and this idea of rebuilding is that God's story needs to be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. We need to realize that that's there. In order to rebuild, we need to keep God's larger story at the forefront. That way we can know God's story is the thing that's the ultimately important. Here's what Nehemiah knows and what you and I must learn. Godly rebuilding is about prayer and planning with proper perspective. Where do you feel like you need to rebuild this morning? What walls and gates need work in your life? Is it a relationship with God, your spouse, your children, your family, your friend? Is it financial? Is it physical? I can promise you whatever it is that the thing that is broken is really a symptom of a greater problem and the greater problem is our souls need to be redeemed and we need to see that our story in relation to God's larger story. We're worried about rebuilding what we see in front of us, but as we pray and plan and with proper perspective, we begin to realize that in the process of rebuilding our lives, God wants to rebuild his people. We talk about rebuilding physical structures in our lives, self-esteem, marriages, friendships. God talks about rebuilding his people. And if we participate in that rebuilding, all the rest will follow. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom all these other things you're worried about, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, they'll all be added to you. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Seek first my kingdom. Have my story at the forefront. There was a prayer uh, I want to close with before we move into our time of communion. Uh, Sir Francis Drake, who was an explorer uh, in the Elizabethan era, naval pioneer, prayed this prayer about disturbance, called a prayer of disturbance. And this is what he prayed. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little. When we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, whose losing, where losing sight of the land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hope and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Disturb us, O Lord. And I think many of us need to pray this prayer in our lives.
disturb us, Lord, because we can get pretty comfortable in the palace of the king. We can get pretty comfortable on this earth and in the role where we might be. But Lord, help us to keep your story at the forefront of our minds and lives. That our story is not central. Our story is just a subplot of your story. And when we have your story at the center, then our hearts will break at the things that your heart breaks at. We will have the proper perspective. Our hearts will be grieved with the things that God's heart is grieved with. And we will understand that people are the project, that people are what's important, that Jesus didn't die for a building, didn't die for a wall, died for people, gave his life that men and women might be redeemed and have relationship with God. 